what are the pros and cons of, of living in an urban wetland? <laughs> oh, trying to think of, of pros. Um, pros is that uh, I suppose that you you might be lucky enough to to uh, be adopted by some uh, uh, group of people who will look after you. <laughs> you are listening to So anyway, yeah, he said it was Sorry, a beard. All right, let's try one more time. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, sitting with co-host Tony Crowsdale and guest host Matthew Haley. And Matthew Haley was just talking about what he spent all day doing. No? Uh, yeah, I spent all day skinning birds. Yeah, okay. That's something. Why would you skin birds? Why well, do ornithologists skin birds? Well, there's... They'll just it, pop them in the there, jars? There are gads and gads and gads of birds that are hitting windows everywhere you look. Whether right. it's in the city here, the skyscrapers, or if you go out to the suburbs and people are, when pe- birds are hitting the screen doors of folks in the suburbs, there's all these birds that are dying. And, Which is a own special problem. We're going to get Yeah, to it's a whole other yeah. problem. And, of course, cats are eating birds, too. And occasionally the cat drags in a carcass. And so people will take those carcasses and they put them into an individual... Ziploc bag, and they put their location, and they put the date, and they put their name, and they put it in the freezer. And then, at their convenience, they deliver it to the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University, where the ornithology department, we are processing all of these window strike birds, and we're skinning them, and we take tissue samples of the heart and the liver and muscle tissue, and all of that tissue gets cataloged and put into a minus 80 deep freezer that's going to preserve those tissues for years and years and years to come. And then we're sequencing DNA from those tissues to figure out the family relationships and figure out the uh, evolutionary relationships of the bird species. Uh, Lots of cool research can be done with the genetics, but it's amazing that these birds that would otherwise just decompose and be destroyed or thrown into the garbage can are actually being recycled for science. So if these these birds have to die for a crappy reason like this, which we hope fewer of them die in the future and we can find solutions, at least they can be used for science. Yeah, um, exactly. So would you recommend that? So if someone's listening to this and they find a dead bird on the sidewalk outside their office building... Yes, please. It's, the most important thing is to put it into an individual bag. So if you find two birds that hit the window, and that happens sometimes... If you throw them into the same Ziploc bag, it seems really easy for you. But when, when it comes to us, it turns out that each bird is carrying special species of lice and you mix mites. Up parasites. The parasites that are on the bird are also really interesting. And if you put them all in the same bag, then the parasites jump hosts. And then we can't tell what parasite came from what. But if you put them into an individual Ziploc bag, then when we get to the to process the bird, we can actually ruffle the bird for lice. And we take each of those lice and put them into ethanol and we freeze them and we do genetics on the lice too so it's a whole is a we call this data rich specimens where for a single specimen we're getting data from genetic data and the skin and and uh, the lice and the whole package we're getting all sorts of many layers of data that are going to be useful for scientists now and in the future right on um so from a morbid topic to slightly happier topics um Mixed morbid. I don't know. I take the bar. But we're going we're gonna to now shift to the major focus of this episode, which is turtles. Um, and not just any turtles, but sea turtles. But actually, before we shift to the major topic of the episode, I almost forgot. Um, let's do our standard introduction stuff. 
Um, if you do like this podcast, please do rate us on your podcasting platform of choice, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're using. Please tell your friends about it by whatever means possible and post about it on Facebook. You can contact us with any ideas for program ide- or any ideas for stories um, or even content that you record to see if maybe we want to put it on the air because we just might. Uh, and you can hit us up at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at urbwildlifecast. Pretty easy to find on Facebook. Um, and you can uh, get in touch with us that way. Also, let us know what you think of the show, um, suggestions, ideas. We're open to all of it. So now to the topic of the day, uh, which is sea turtles. Um, and this is all stuff that we recorded like a year ago. We've got, we got way ahead of ourselves at the beginning of recording everything. And we recorded so many stories that we're sort of working through a backlog of really interesting stuff. Um, and today we, we put together three stories about... I'll sort of say sea turtles. Not all of them are actually in the sea, but you know the ocean-urban intersection is something neat that we've talked about before. Uh, you know, we think of cities as being on the land, but so many cities are ports on oceans that you have these important interactions between what lives in oceans um, and people on land, whether directly or indirectly. The first season we talked about the Gotham Whale Project in New York City, and actually a few episodes I posted um, a little bit of my own. Finally, I did my own whale watching trip out of New York, uh, where humpback whales seem to be visiting more often now because of improving um, forage fish populations because of improving water quality. Um, so right there, we have sort of like a land pollution to water pollution to you know to to positively cascading trophic systems in the ocean, bringing whales closer to New York. Um, we talked also to a fisheries biologist in Philadelphia named Joe Perillo about migratory fish in Philadelphia's rivers, whether that's sturgeon or his favorite shad. Um, we also talked to people at Miami's Coralogics, a project that's really into the corals of urban Miami. Wait, that hasn't come out yet? It did come out. Oh, I thought you... Oh, yeah. I'm talking about things we already put on. Oh, yeah, yeah. referring back to them. Yeah, I was like, confused for a second. Oh, no, no, no. And so then here in New York, uh, we're going to start off listening to a little bit from... Dr. Russell Burke, who's a herpetologist at Hofstra University, um, about his work with diamondback terrapin. So here we go. My name is Russell Burke, and I'm a professor of biology at Hofstra University. So for people who are unfamiliar, describe a time, uh, please describe a diamondback terrapin. A uh, diamondback terrapin is, is what, you know, mostly we call a, a medium-sized turtle. So for a lot of people, I say it's about the size of a full-grown red-eared slider, which um, some people, you know, rings a bell with, mo- with some people. But, you know, it's, um, it's, a, it's uh, you know, something in the neighborhood of, um, you know, eight or nine inches long for a big female. And males are considerably smaller. Uh, and they live in, in brackish water. That's the, that's the somewhat salty water along the coastline. Uh, from uh, from Cape Cod in, in Massachusetts to Corpus Christi in Texas, and uh, the other important thing about them is that they are they are a marsh uh, uh, requiring species. They need to have they need to live around marshes, so they're restricted to places where they're either marshes. And in some cases, they live in mangrove swamps, but mostly salt marshes. So um, they're uh, you know they're pretty widespread in a kind of a linear range that goes along the coastline. Uh, almost the entire United States eastern coastline. Can you describe where you find them around New York? Well, New York has um, actually a, quite a number of terrapin populations. Uh, 
We have them, you know, all around Long Island, so which is, you know, our, our most of our marine coastline is Long Island. Um, and so, you know, they're all around Long Island, but generally pretty spotty, like a small number here and, a, and you know, another population here and another population there. So, you know, you, there are not large stretches of shoreline on Long Island, uh, you know, many, 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 many miles where you could go and not see terrapins or not find terrapins. But on the other hand, um, most of those populations are relatively small. And then they go up the Hudson River for quite a ways on, up uh, about 25 miles from the mouth of the Hudson up into um, the, the, uh, a marsh called Piermont Marsh, a little ways up from the Hudson. And that has a small population of terrapins as well. So, you know, Long Island and the lower Hudson are, are terrapin habitat. So if you're a terrapin, what are... I, mean, I, could, I usually think in terms of cons, but I suppose what are the pros and cons of, of living in an urban wetland? <laughs> oh, trying to think of, of pros. Um, pros is that uh, I suppose that you you might be lucky enough to to uh, be adopted by some uh, group of people who will look after you. <laughs> you know, they will protect some nests. So that's a that's a that's a pro. But but nearly every place where they live anywhere in their range. Um, they are, uh, there's enough of a human uh, impact that uh, they're very likely to, um, uh, to be uh, experiencing subsidized um, uh, predator populations. And, um, you know, so we, we subsidize raccoon populations even in areas where humans don't live at high density. So even in non-urban areas, uh, raccoon populations are probably supplement, uh, you know, better off because of humans being around. Just the trash that washes up on beaches everywhere, you know, that feeds raccoons. So, you know, every place is really humans. Uh, humans are subsidizing raccoons, and even in areas where there isn't high density of human populations, we have roads, and roads are major mortality uh, uh, sources for terrapins as well. And again, even in areas where humans don't live in high densities, people trap blue crabs. And blue crabs uh, trapping is a major source of mortality for terrapins as well. So there really is no place, you know, no, there aren't very many places where terrapins live where, uh, where they're not impacted negatively by, by humans. So with all that working against them, um, what is uh, New York City doing to help them? I think that the single biggest thing that New York City is doing to help terrapins is something that's not doing for terrapins whatsoever, but it's doing for other reasons and is secondarily helping terrapins. Probably the biggest, most important thing that New York City itself is doing is um, uh, improving the quality of the sewage outflow into Jamaica Bay so that it's, redu- it's, it's not releasing nearly so much nitrogen. And as a result, we are expecting to have healthier marshes in Jamaica Bay. And as a result of that, we expect to have um, uh, uh, some, maybe some better conditions for the terrapins that live there. Thanks. Um, do uh, and I guess if you're just sort of listening to this and, and decide you like terrapins, is there anything? Are, are there volunteer opportunities or ways listeners can get involved with helping terrapins? Well, a great way to start to get introduced to terrapins is the Diamondback Terrapin Working Group, which is tdwg.org, um, which is e- easily accessible on the web and is, is really the place to go for people who are seriously interested in terrapins. Um, and it's, uh, it's really a, a, collect, a, a, a meeting place, a, a collecting place for um, all serious uh, researchers and, and students and, and uh, you know, just anybody who's interested in learning more about terrapins. It has a massive collection of literature on terrapins. 
and it's a great way to get plugged into the conservation efforts everywhere. Um, second to that, that it's got, um, uh, you know, if you're in the New York City area, um, my research project is, is really a large citizen science project, and um, we have usually in the neighborhood of 30 to 60 volunteers every summer who come out and help with our terrapin research uh, at Jamaica Bay. So if you contact me, I can definitely set you up to do some of that. Great. Thank you. Um, and I should just ask you to tell an anecdote. I remember you – I think this was you. Sorry if it wasn't. Um, <laughs> but telling a story um, about raccoon – sort of, I guess, raccoon dumping um, that might have artificially increased raccoon populations in Jamaica Bay. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting story. Again, probably one that we'll never be able to nail down entirely. But the main island where we do our work uh, in Jamaica Bay is called Rulers Bar, and this is a this is an area that actually is a man-made island. Um, before uh, the the you know the turn of the century, this was a it was a marsh um, with maybe no real uplands at all. So it might have been a marsh that flooded completely at every high tide, or at least some high tides, and uh, had no upland at all. And there was a period of time when Jamaica Bay, some parts of Jamaica Bay were excavated to make the, the, the water deeper so, so the bigger ships could get in. And they took the sediment that they dug up when they did that digging and piled it on top of marshes. And one of those marshes was the one that used, you know, is, is, is where the island is now. And so they essentially created an island where there was a marsh before. And I, I say all this because that suggests that probably there were not raccoons there when the island was first created. Uh, and there was actually a, uh, some mammal surveys that were done back in the 70s, some medium-sized mammal surveys, and they didn't find any raccoons there at all. So I interpret the fact that it's a, a you know a recently created man-made island and the fact that mammal surveys failed to find raccoons to conclude that there probably weren't raccoons there in the early years of the island. And so then the question comes, how did the raccoons get there? And in the 1950s and 60s, uh, bridges were built out to the island, and certainly raccoons could cross bridges, and certainly raccoons can swim, uh, and they can also cross ice. So there's, there's lots of opportunities for them to get there basically on their own. But we also know, because I've observed it, that... Um, uh, that exterminators or you know people, animal control people in New York City, uh, have sometimes brought raccoons out to the island and released them there. That island is of course now a wildlife refuge, but people bring uh, have brought uh, raccoons out there and released them with the understanding that uh, they're uh, uh, you know they're doing a good thing for the raccoons because they're taking them out of people's backyards and letting them loose in a wildlife refuge where you know they can be free and be happy and all that kind of stuff. So we have good evidence that um, that at least raccoon population has been supplemented by raccoons from the city. All right. Thank you very much, and have a great day. You too. Take care. Um, these are some of my favorite turtles. We live in Philadelphia. Uh, they're relatively easy to spot in the marshlands around, or the marshes around uh, the Delaware Bay and the marshes um, on sort of the, what's it called? On the Jersey Shore. The Jersey Shore. Yep, if you go down to Stone Harbor and Avalon. Yeah. Yep. So when people talk about the Wildwood. Jersey Shore, you're talking about like a whole bunch of barrier islands. And then so on the, the, I don't know what to call it, there's the ocean side, and what's the other side called? Bayside. Bayside, thank you. 
great. The bay side of these barrier islands, um, you have good uh, diamondback terrapin populations. They are an important subject of conservation because a lot of the reasons that Russell was talking about, whether that's uh, the ghost crab traps or the active crab traps killing them. Or the raccoons. Raccoons, subsidized predators, pollution. A big focus also, I know on the Jersey Shore, is, is automobile traffic because the females will cross roads trying to nest. And the worst thing you can do to a long-lived animal is kill the breeding females to really put the ta- population to a tailspin. It's the kind of thing where you can also go out when they're nesting, and there's places that make a point of this, giving opportunities to observe them or, or see some of them that have been rescued and see some of the nests that they've protected, like the Wetlands Institute at Stone Harbor, um, where they got a great, a great collection of rescued terrapins. And actually, let's segue to your bird thing, where if you find a recently killed female terrapin, you can bring them in, and sometimes they can rescue the eggs out of her carcass and incubate them and hatch them. And then they do the cutest release thing ever, where they get kindergartners to release the head-started baby terrapins. And as far as salvage goes for birds, you can also collect salvage birds uh, in New Jersey, too. Well, Academy will take salvage birds from New Jersey, too. I know I'm trying, I'm harping on the same topic over and over, but it's a great, you know, and, great way to, to utilize these otherwise sadly killed animals. And I'll say it's also, you can do the same thing with a lot of different kinds of dead animals. Um, I know people who will, sometimes you have to have license, the right license to do it, but usually people are pretty cool about it. Like, if you find, like, a dead, like you're saying, a salvage dead bird... Um, if you're finding a dead snake on the road, even, or something like that, if you pop in the freezer um, and record where you found it and when. Mm, that's the most important thing. Um, and then you can you can uh, use that, whether you take it to your local university, biology department, or something like that. They'll know what to do with it. Um, local Natural History Museum. Um, and they can use that as a voucher. Uh, the animal itself will be useful, as well as having documentation of it occurring where it occurred um, is also a useful data point. So, Tony, you ever interact with diamondback terrapins when you're out when you're down the shore looking up at birds? Oh, I mean, you know me. I love uh, I love everything. I'm a huge fan of diamondback terrapins. They're so gorgeous. They, I mean, they have beautiful lips. I love their. Uh, He's their right. Sp- they got great lips. They got, got their like, spotty heads. Yeah. You know when you know um, they're they're a treat. I mean, even sometimes you just see the little heads poking up in the water. Sometimes you see them hauled out. Yeah. They're gorgeous. I mean, they're they're. Among yeah. my favorite turtles, um, so yeah, I'm quite familiar with them. And so they're they're. I've nice. also I've also picked them up off the road in Absecon and stuff, and like released them back in yep. in, in, in the salt marsh and stuff. Yeah. So when you when you see them, um, if they're nesting, leave them alone. Um, if you see a turtle crossing the road, this is I always have to say this. Always take it in the direction it's heading. They can be stubborn, and so they might just like if you take it back the wrong way, they'll just try again. And we'll segue now into to Umer Shahid from the World Wildlife Fund in Pakistan, in Karachi, talking about um, green sea turtles in, in Pakistan waters off Karachi that face some of the same challenges, actually. We've got subsidized predators, um, whether it's crows or feral dogs or raccoons from the U.S. side. Uh, these are all things that eat sea turtle eggs, and when human activity, whether it's whether it's littering and trash and rubbish, or whether it is intentional, like putting cat food out for the, the cats outside that attracts them. You know, all these things kind of boost the population of critters that eat sea turtle eggs or diamondback terrapin eggs. 
Yes, my name is uh, Omer Shahid, and I'm working as the North Indian Ocean Coordinator for the Marine Program uh, for WWF Pakistan. Uh, could you give a, just a quick introduction about that marine program? What do you guys do in general with marine ecosystems and marine conservation in Pakistan? Uh, great question, because uh, marine, we started off the marine program about three years ago, and uh, we focused more on data collection and filling in the information gaps, because three years ago we did not know exactly what was happening on the coast of Pakistan, and it was all new information for us. So we started off with collecting a lot of data on the resources and that Pakistan has, and then we built on working with capacity building of the government uh, stakeholders, and then we started working at the regional level. So it was a lot of advocacy, it was a lot of lobbying uh, for having compliance to international binding and non-binding instruments, such as the UNCLOS, which is the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Okay. Uh, as well as um, FAO's International Plan of Action for Sharks, which says to uh, have shark management measures in place for all the countries that are targeting sharks. So uh, all, overall, we have a human welfare um, focus because we believe that we only have to manage people. And if we can manage people, we can manage the resources. So let's start then with uh, talking a little bit about the um, the marine turtles that you find um, off of Pakistan. Like, what what species are we looking at? Oh, we're looking at about five species which have been reported from the Pakistani waters. Now, uh, the thing is that the marine turtles are really a species of special concern, and uh, they are considered flagship species. They're iconic. They're very important to the ecosystem. So we're looking at about five species, but only one of them is nesting in our uh, on the coastline, which is the green turtles. Unfortunately, we used to have a lot of olive ridley turtles nesting on our beach, but the records date back to about 12 years from now, and we haven't had any nesting. There have been some unconfirmed reports of leatherbacks and loggerheads as well, but uh, there's still unconfirmed reports, and there's no convincing evidence to prove that. So... The places where they nest, are they sort of beaches, like isolated beaches in the middle of nowhere, or are they beaches uh, closer to people? Talk about sort of the, the places they find themselves nesting in relative to the people that you talked about managing. Oh, well, relatively, uh, the beaches are quite close. It's actually in the city, which is uh, Karachi. Uh, it's Karachi is in the southern part of Pakistan, and it's right uh, it's right on the sea level, so it's a metropolitan city, very densely populated, hosts a population of about 20 million or even more, which contributes to about 10, which is actually the 10% of the total population of Pakistan. And it's quite close. Then there are beaches which are uh, isolated, but they have fragmented nesting um, uh, on the western coast. So most of the nesting is focused in this particular area, which is categorized or famously recognized as Sandspit and Hawkesbury beaches. Now, they are uh, located southwest of the Karachi city and about stretch to about 15 to 20 kilometers long, of which about five and a half kilometers um, is the area where all these green turtles come to nest. And on an annual basis, um, they come to about 2,500 to 3,000 green turtles. And we have a very extended period of nesting. It's uh, it, it stretches from July of each year to December, sometimes even January and February have uh, nesting, which is quite odd at the moment. So 
what are what kind of challenges does a, a green sea turtle face when it's nesting um, near so many people? Oh, well, just to give a brief background about how many people are visiting, there are about 100,000 people coming okay. to the beach on a monthly basis. So it's a, theme, it's a famous recreational spot, to be honest, and people from the capital and other parts of the province come here. And all these people, they bring in a lot of stuff, um, a lot of garbage, they do a lot of littering, there's a lot of uh, disturbance on the, uh, during the nesting activity, which happens at, the, at, at night. Uh, sometimes they do it intentionally, sometimes they do it unintentionally. Even uh, the habitat is uh, not much predicted because of the coastal development that's going on. There are more than 200 cemented huts. Now, these are permanent structures located right there on the beach. According, now, according to the legislation or according to the international law, there should be a setback line. So all the development that happens on the coast should be at least 500 meters away from the high tide watermark. But unfortunately, these are about 100 meters away from the high tide watermark. So all the habitat is being lost. And these species are struggling in terms of where they will be nesting. Now, these are uh, known facts. These are anthropogenic factors, but there are also natural ones at play, such as, you know, predation, uh, which is... Uh, due to the increase of crows, uh, they're scavengers, but they also hunt. And the common kites, the uh, the seagulls, or the feral dogs, that, um, which have, the population has bloomed for feral dogs because um, the communities that reside around the beach, um, they feed them and they, service, they offer protection to the communities. So and that's an added issue as well. But there are emerging threats that we are not fully aware of, such as climate change. Uh, we're not sure how it may impact the turtle populations, but it's slowly being recognized as one of the threats which needs a lot of attention and research. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard about ghost nets at the moment. Ghost nets are mostly those nets that have been discarded in the sea. Uh, these are uh, nets that, uh, uh, that the fishers use. Uh, they have been replaced. They have been... Uh, either they get stuck on the surface or on the bottom and then the fishers they just release them or they cut them down so they float and they are not visible and, uh, and the reason why they're not visible are because of the material that they're made and then they're left dangled on the rocky reef or uh, even drifting in the open ocean and these are really direct threats to, uh, to, this, to these populations um, and I want to come back just to ask you to explain a couple other points you mentioned there because they're really interesting and I want to make sure we understand them. Um, the the feral dogs. So talk about how they. I, mean, I think of feral dogs as as, um, as usually sort of as a pest. Uh, talk about how they protect villages or, or, or people. Go ahead. Uh, that's a very interesting question, and I think the social scientist or the anthropologist would be really happy to answer them. <laughs> um, <laughs> me being a social, uh, being a natural scientist, it's difficult to integrate those elements, but sure. I'll try my best. I might have understood a um, comment so, that you made. I thought you said about somebody, either the dogs protecting people or people protecting the dogs. Uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's both ways, actually. So what happens is because uh, these coastal areas, uh, the villagers, these are mostly fishers, and they're mostly off to fishing at nights. So all the males, all the uh, men go out for fishing, so their females and the children are left alone. 
So they have a fear that people may intrude into their privacy or they may be going about cutting down the mangrove forest, which is also located around that area. So in terms of having protection, it has, it's a relation that has developed over time. Um, they feed the dogs because everything that they, um, because the fishermen communities think that everything that they consume and everything that they left out should not go to waste. So they offer that food to the animals, which in this case are the stray dogs. In turn, they get protection. So if they see any person which is outside the village or they don't recognize, they set an alarm. So everyone is active. So it, in that sense, it gives a lot of protection. And even uh, there have been cases where uh, uh, where snakes have uh, come into the uh, come into their houses, and dogs have actually saved children from being bitten by snakes. How might global warming affect uh, these nesting turtles? Uh, wonderful question. <laughs> Uh, this is really uh, this is really complex as well um, because what we have seen in the past is that uh, the sea level is, is rising and this, the sea turtles' memories are imprinted with a magnetic map of the sandy beach where they hatch. So, you know, this gives them the ability to return on the same site. So, decades later, these animals will come back and nest in that same location. So, ideally, if it uh, if a marine turtle has nested on the beach, on one beach, it will come again for nesting. So, considering the climate, and that's uh, that's there, and with the uh, we did a pilot study quite recently, and we found out how these uh, sea turtles are being affected is because of the temperatures in the sand in which the eggs incubate. So, and these temperatures they actually determine the gender of the hatchling. So typically the eggs in the lower parts of the chamber, which is the nest, uh, will be cooler, uh, while the part of the nest which will, is on the upper side of the, ne- of the chamber, which is the nest, will become uh, warmer. So the part that's cooler will have more males, while the eggs in the upper part, which is warmer, will have more females. So with increasing nest temperatures, scientists have predicted that there will be more females than male hatchlings. So this is a, creating a significant threat to the genetic diversity. You know, warmer ocean temperatures will also likely affect the negative impact on the food chain, such as um, the coral bleaching. So there will be less food supply for these animals. So And also it will change the ecological processes. So there's not just one way climate change can affect them. They can uh, skew sex ratios. So if there are more females, there won't be any males to, uh, you know, reproduce. So, and if, likewise, if it's, there are more males, there won't be any females for enough reproduction to happen. And the chance of one turtle to survive in its lifetime is one out of uh, 10,000 approximately, or one out of, uh, uh, maybe I'm stretching it a bit, but 10 out of 10,000 maybe the ones able to survive and live off to 100, 150 years, like it's mentioned in Finding Nemo, if you've seen that animated movie, which talks about that it's yes, 150 years and still young. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of, because the issues are, are really complex. What's happening on the coast can be managed, but what's happening in the sea in terms of the ecological processes, the predation, or the fisheries, because the fisheries poses a huge threat to these animals, uh, because they come as bycatch. 
So bycatch is becoming a significant issue with the increased fishing effort. Um, everywhere we see people have been, uh, the fishers that we meet have huge, huge nets. The, the use of advanced and modern technology, um, the use of troll nets for, uh, for catching shrimps, um, you know, so they're targeting fisheries at all trophic levels. So nothing is being spared at the moment. So it's uh, the bycatch is becoming one of the biggest threats. Um, so we've sort of now we've 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 listed we've gone through some of the major threats to the turtles. Um, can you talk a little bit about your programming? What is you know you said you, you in 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 um, WWF Pakistan's view the the thing to do is to is to try to manage the people. Can you talk a little bit about what you guys do? Uh, absolutely. Um, just before I talk about WWF program, pro, uh, sorry, programming, I would like to uh, you know just highlight the efforts made by the Sin Wildlife Department, which oh, is please the do, provincial, yeah. you know, provincial wildlife department. They have been the pioneers of sea turtle conservation work, and then uh, they have been declared protected under the Wildlife Protection Ordinance back in 1972, and they started off their projects in 1979. And they developed hatcheries, and uh, they monitor the populations. They rescue turtles uh, where they're hatching, where they're not, and then also, you know, they rescue the stranded turtles. So, but but of course, the governments have some gaps, and they have constraints. So that's this is where WWF uh, really came in and um, tried to ensure that you know the marine conservation efforts are not are focused, and because. You cannot work in isolation when you're doing conservation work. You need uh, focus, you need stakeholder involvement, you need uh, multiple uh, partnerships to help those things out. So in that sense, um, we, we did an analysis of the threats. And as I mentioned, bycatch is one of them. So how we came into play was to understand that we need to uh, manage people what we did was we basically targeted fishers. Now, what we did was we trained the fishermen who were going on these boats and who were acting at, who were the skippers, who were the captains of the boat, and we gave them trainings. And we uh, wanted we inquired whether they were what kind of species were they catching. So we provided them species identification guides um, so they, they can recognize turtles because, in general sense, they would you know recognize all the turtles as, as turtles, but not as individual species. So it, it took a lot of time. It took a lot of, uh, you know, capacity building, a lot of sensitization uh, for these fishers. And once they started bringing in records uh, through digital cameras, which we had given them, uh, we found out that, wow, what are they catching is huge. And the way they are handling the, uh, the marine turtle catch is also considerable. So when we gave them trainings, we asked them to record the data. We defined the safe release practices for uh, the bycott sea turtles. And these included, you know, when they haul uh, the handling, when they haul the net. That is, you know, when they lift the net when a turtle is confirmed to be entangled. And then handling while on board to uh, ensure that they take careful measurements, uh, if possible, holding the specimen from both sides of the carapace and lifting it uh, so they're not manhandling it, and then releasing it back in the ocean that is, you know, leaning towards the side of the vessel uh, while handling the hurdle and bending as much as, as they can, stretching and releasing it 
face down. So reducing impact as far as possible. So during the study, uh, which we have been doing since uh, January 2013, since then, we've seen that, and I'm just talking about four vessels at the moment. Yeah. Uh, the data is just from four vessels. It's, and they were catching about 600 sea turtles, which included about more than 400 olive ridleys, uh, around 200 uh, greens, and very few, very few hawksbill turtles. And, and sorry, and for, a, for context, how many vessels are, are we talking about as the total number working in those waters? Oh, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that. Um, there are about more than 500 fishing vessels. Oh, okay. Same... Yeah, which have uh, the uh, and the length of the nets range from about four thousand to seven thousand meters long. They're about that, which means four kilometers to seven kilometers. It's a long. We we call it the Great Wall of Death. <laughs> so <And> rightly so. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, so nothing is spared. Uh, you talk about it, sharks. You talk about cetaceans, uh, including dolphins and whales. And, and manta rays, species that are endangered, species that are categorized uh, as high interest species on our list, they, they are all caught. Um, but the good thing about it is through this awareness program and through this training and capacity building of the fishers, we reduce the mortality uh, to a significant deal. So among those 600 sea turtles that were caught in these four vessels, about 500, more, more than 500, around, uh, the figures that I have were 540. And I published a paper on this as well, which uh, you can easily find on the internet. Uh, about 540 turtles were released alive, and only 60 turtles died. Um, so that's reducing the mortality to about 10%, which was previously more than 50%. So that's a great amount of work that we, uh, that we had to do. Uh, for reducing the mortality from 50% to 10%. And we aim to go down to 1% and even zero, inshallah, very soon. Do you have anything else you might like to add before we wrap up? I'll just reiterate the fact about the success from the, um, from the training of the crew-based observer coverage program that we have. Yeah. Since 2000, we have been able to safely release alive 22 whale sharks, um, six manta rays, three bottlenose dolphins, one longman's beet whale, stingrays, sunfish, sea snakes, sea birds, guitar fishes, and thousands of marine turtles. These include greens, olive ridleys, hawksbill, loggerhead, and leatherback. Huh. Now, and all of these have been published, and they have also aired in a U.S. magazine. I will be happy to share those materials oh, with, with you yeah. and your audience. Yeah. And the second thing that I wanted to highlight was about ghost nets because we, I think we haven't really touched a lot on that. But just to give you an estimate about how much does it impact, yeah. um, there, the UN has estimated that about 640,000 tons of ghost gear are lost on an annual basis. That's, that's a lot of ghost gear. That's a lot of gear. And it's really expensive. Um, and it's a huge problem. We've just started a project with uh, uh, with an NGO that's called Olive Ridley Project. And if you want to know more about it, you can go on their website, which is oliveridleyproject.org. And we're trying to now work on removing these ghost care from our uh, coastal beaches. 
as well as the coral reefs because that's where all of these uh, kind of aggregate. So in that sense, um, I think my shout out to the public would be to join hands with conservation organizations and also uh, with other government organizations and spread the word about why we want to secure these turtles, or why these turtles are important, or why these species can be can play a significant role. Because I believe that um, if we can save these turtles, they are very helpful in maintaining the ecosystem health. Uh, and when we are uh, when we success or when we succeed in securing the ecosystem health, it will be us, the humans, who will benefit. And I don't want my children to see these animals in history museums or in history books. I want to see them, I want my children to see them alive. And so, and I think it's, an, it's, it's our obligation to pass this on to the next generation. Another thing I had thought about being in common with the Terrapin situation is the fishing equipment. Whether that's ghost nets in Pakistani waters, and we had to we had to sit stop there and like talk about wait how long were those nets? Because um, seven kilometers is just a freakishly long object. Considering yeah, it's just incredibly long, and anything that falls into that net is gonna die. And anytime those nets are put out, it's kind of assumed that anything that gets into that net is going to die. It's just dying is going to attract more things to feed on them. And it's going to attract more things, yeah. It's a it's a very long net of death. Yeah. Wall of death. I think he said wall of death. I don't wall know what he called it. But it yeah. was like, I know a band that has an album named Wall of Death. The System. My band. Our first album. What was it about then? So, so far, and we're going to get into this term later on with the... The, uh, the Long so, Beach one we were talking about, but we've, you, the, the, the term discharge, which you mentioned as, an, as another band title, we've got Wall of Death. We'll see how many punk references we can inadvertently. I think that uh, uh, you know, Mortality would be a good band name, but it's interesting mm-hmm. to think about the many different well, types of is a band infant mortality. Okay, okay, okay. The okay. different types of mortality. You know? Anthromortality. We've now. got, uh, you know, Turtles are dealing not only with adult mortality in in uh, long nets, but they're also dealing with uh, hatchling mortality yep. when they're leaving the nest from and running across the beach to try to enter the water for the first time. Run the gauntlet of crows or whatever. Gosh, yeah, yeah crows and monitor lizards and you know you name it. Depending on where they are in the world, they're going to be facing a whole suite of predators yeah. during that run across the beach yeah. then once you get to the water then you're dealing with a whole another suite of predators uh the lives of these turtles are every stage of life is uh a daunting challenge to say sweet the least predators is also a good band name sweet predators okay we'll take that um that was Gigi with her contribution to the podcast episode <laughs> today um the uh and then the thing is that with turtles though once they get to be a certain size they're supposed to be safe. I mean, like, the way they've evolved is to get to adulthood, and then it's a lot harder to kill them. Yeah. Um, and then, so on top of all those problems, now when you've got terrapins trapped in a crab trap, or you've got a green turtle um, trapped in a seven-kilometer-long net, yeah. um, and it's just horrifying to think of... And, and when the nesting season comes, and this... Green, and this green sea turtle, for example, 
Um, or olive ridley turtle or leatherback sea turtle, or there's many different sea turtles. They, they come back to their natal site to breed. They come back to the very same beach that they hatch from. And, you know, not only are there temperature effects on the sex ratios, like our uh, guest talked about, yep. but also we've got light pollution from the town. No, that's and, a good point. And these creatures are very, very sensitive to light. And there's so many different anthrop- anthropogenic uh, influences that are going to affect them, their behavior in some way that might have some repercussions down the line that is going to increase mortality at, uh, at either the nestling stage or the nest stage or the adult stage, right? So the, n- these anthropogenic factors that are human-caused are affecting the sea turtles at every stage of their life cycle. Not just at one stage. Yeah, that's that's the critical thing, and so there's no saving grace for these turtles. It was interesting. I mean, it was hopeful also talking to Umer about sort of what they're doing, as he put it, to manage the people. You know, hopeful signs with helping um, helping fishers, uh, the fishing industry in Pakistan, uh, do things to to not kill so many turtles. Um, also on the the what do I call it um, the Sind basically the uh, as for the wildlife officials the provincial wildlife officials um, working on sort of the land side threats to the turtles um, there's really like a robust response it's kind of it's and you know it sounds like that even observations going back just a dozen years that it's sort of something that people are newly aware of you know for a guy who loves turtles it's a gratifying thing to see that whether you're in like Miami Beach. Or you're in Karachi, you know, huge cities on oceans that people can sort of, you know, come together and say, hey, we like sea turtles. What can we do to save them? We've come to a point here where we we think of sea turtles as this uncommon thing, which is in, uh, in many, know, in many waters, yeah. right? And if we look back into history, we see that they were ex- they were inc- huge populations of sea turtles back Tons in the day. Of them. Yeah. They were back during the colonial era when Europeans were traveling across the Atlantic Ocean to colonialize to uh, colonize colonialize. That's a good word. Um, maybe it's a more appropriate thing. Colonize and they sea turtles were an excellent source of food because in these big ships that are traveling across the ocean and and. You can you can capture a sea turtle and keep it on it, oh, turn so it onto its back, yeah. and it's upside down on its shell. And as long as you keep putting water onto it, it's gonna live for a while. It's gonna suffer incredibly, but it's it's gonna. No, it, it works if it's what you need to eat. But yeah, yeah but it, it's great for a f- source of food. And so and so sea turtles were an, a abundant source of food for the colonists. Did they say uh, that the ships they would just like hear like clunk after clunk of hint sea turtles. It's, it's a thing that like I've seen covered a little more that like that we focus so much on biodiversity and on extinction that sometimes people don't focus as much as we should on the loss of abundance of wildlife. I don't know, man. I saw this thing on Discovery Channel that convinced me that there's mermaids, and I'm sure they're eating uh, <laughs> sea turtles. Why can't the mermaids be vegetarians and just eat kelp? That was a weird man. That was the weirdest, weirdest program, and Dude, quite disingenuous. Do you know how I said. first saw that? Is when my apartment in South Philly got bed bugs, and I like, <laughs> and I went to the, I, so I like got a Priceline and like ended up staying at the Sheraton a few nights yeah. while I was like while they're treating my apartment, and I was um having, watching cable, <laughs> and I was having my, you know, I was like, 
have my clothes like washed and dried at high heat and everything, all that stuff. But the other one, the cable one, came on. But like it was like I turned it on like mid show, and I was like, I was like, what the, what the hell is this? <laughs> like it was crazy. Yeah, the Discovery Channel's come a long way since I was like watching it on my parents' sofa growing up. Last up, we've got Cassandra Davis from the Aquarium of the Pacific talking with Tony about green sea turtles that live in the San Gabriel River in Long Beach, California. How'd you find this one? I saw an article on Facebook or something about it, and I was like, or maybe my buddy in L.A. said it to me. I forget. But I was like, this is crazy. Like, (laughs) this is like, I I mean, I just had to know more about this. So who who discovered this phenomena? So it has been reported uh, a number of times by different fishermen or bicyclists, uh, but the primary people who started to document the turtles in the river included uh, some volunteers at the Aquarium of the Pacific, as well as uh, some naturalists who were studying the area for the wetlands project. So the river, uh, it's the San Gabriel River has been channelized. Uh, it and the Los Angeles River were channelized in order to prevent flooding. And it is an area that is a larger channel because it's at the mouth of the river. And it's where the fresh water mixes where the uh, salt water. And they go through a mixing process for the brackish water. And in that brackish water, that wider channel, you have our marine life appearing, including juveniles, as well as the fully grown uh, sea lions and other animals that might swim up the river. And you also can see the sea turtles there, who do tend to be in their uh, juvenile or teenage years. And how far up do they they go up the river? So there's a section of the river that's about uh, one to two miles that allows them access to that brackish water. It's not uh, possible for them to go past that section. There is a bit of a barrier between the fresh water and the brackish water. But they do tend to swim up and down a pretty large section, and many uh, cyclists will be able to see them because there's a bike path right next to that section. Wow, I gotta, I gotta go see that. Is there a specific season that they're there, or are they there year round? Well, we have observed turtles there year round, and our citizen science project is in the process of seeing what we can determine as far as estimates for population numbers, population trends, and tendencies. Yeah, they do leave the river, and they do uh, breed elsewhere. So they do uh, spend time in the river, and they do seem to enjoy and feed in the river, but they don't spend their entire lives there. They do leave for breeding grounds probably uh, in the uh, more warmer waters of Mexico. Uh, green turtles have been observed as breeding on Hawaii, Mexico, Gulf of California. Uh, We don't know where these specific ones do breed, but there have been trackers attached to them. There was a tracking project done in cooperation with the the, uh, California State University Long Beach, as well as a few other entities that did attach some radio uh, trackers to them. So they would ping a... uh, 
specific uh, radio telemetry station, and that would measure where they traveled in the river, how fast they traveled up or down the river, and whether or not they left the river. But there are some challenges when tracking any type of sea turtle. And the biggest challenge is that the tracking device is uh, lost or falls off during the natural course of the turtle's movements. So for those tracking devices, we were able to determine that none of the tracking track turtles in that period of time left the river while they were wearing a tracking device. And how long a time were they being tracked for? Uh, it was over a year. Uh, the longest time that a tracking device stayed on a turtle was just over a year. It is a uh, common area for juveniles to spend time growing up. It's a safer area because it's more sheltered from pre predators that would be in open water. You can uh, often find many juvenile ocean animals in those brackish water areas at river mouths and outlets. And in fact, wetlands communities are essential to ocean habitats and ocean health because of this. They are a nursery for, uh, for different animals. And the area where these sea turtles are found is actually an area that was once a natural wetlands. And the Los Cerritos Wetlands uh, Authority and Conservancy and other organizations around that are actually actively working to restore those wetlands and habitats uh, for the turtles and for many other animals that are located in that area. Uh, sea turtles in general, especially the green sea turtle, uh, but many other turtles have a temperature range that is their ideal temperature range, and that usually requires warmer waters. And it's because at a certain point, if the water get, becomes too cold, the turtles will suffer from what's known as cold stunning, and that renders them in a kind of catatonic state, and they can't really survive or thrive in that way. That being said, we do have here uh, the northernmost known population of green sea turtles uh, on the Pacific coast, on uh, this side of the Pacific coast, I should say. And we do know of green sea turtles that will travel up the Gulf Stream while the Gulf Stream uh, is further north. So you will find uh, instances of turtles being cold stunned or being rescued far up into New England areas, so Maine or Massachusetts, you will hear reports of that. They'll transport them back down to Florida. Those will happen in the fall and winter months. Here on the west coast of America, we don't have the same current pattern, so we don't have a Gulf Stream that moves up the coast and back down the coast, but we do have uh, inlets and estuary areas that are warmer because the water is shallower. And that's really what's happened with these sea turtles. It's uh, primarily because the water in that river area is warmer, that they're able to stay and survive and even thrive in that type of environment. They're not necessarily as many as you would find in a warmer uh, environment or a warmer location, but uh, the fact that they're there and they seem to be doing quite well is pretty exciting. And is it warmer because of the urban area they're in, or is it just some other function of the climate there? Yes. That part of the river is warmer because of the city. 
at this point in time. However, historically, the wetlands areas would naturally warm the waters because the waters are shallower and the wetlands would have seagrass or other darker grasses that, you know, the sun coming down would heat up and provide a great environment for the turtles. So although it is uh, warmer now because of human input, which includes the channelization of the river, the water in the channel actually heats up as the sun shines down on it, and some of our warmest parts of the river can be found up where the river meets the brackish water, meets, meets the ocean, essentially. Uh, and we also do have two uh, power stations that are using what's called once-through cooling, and they take in water use it to cool down uh, areas of the power station and pump it back out, and it's a warmer water in those locations as well. It is very likely that the turtles have been present um, for quite some time, and it's likely that they were present before these anthropogenic contributions to the river before our artificial heat was added to the river, uh, and it's very likely that with the restoration of the wetlands habitats that they will continue to be present, and we see evidence of that a little bit further south, not too far south, but a little bit further south in an area known as Bolsa Chica, which is a wetlands area that has been relatively restored. We do find turtles there as well, and the fact that they're present there indicates that they will probably continue to be present with the restoration of the Los Cerritos wetlands. What's the population size there? In Long Beach? Oh, oh no, not... of the turtles. Oh, of the oh, turtles. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sorry yeah. of the Long Beach population. Uh, the sea turtles... We are, so one of our observation projects uh, goals is to determine some rough estimates of the population of sea turtles, both population trends and uh, a general baseline picture of the population and their habits. And one of the things that we found is there are uh, probably about two larger sized turtles and those are at the fully grown or near fully grown stage. The remainder of the turtles are teenagers, so they haven't yet reached the age where they can go reproduce, and they're possibly spending the time in this river area to grow up and become larger, grow larger and stronger, before they go out and migrate to the breeding grounds. Now, our population estimates range from greater than 10 to uh, as high as maybe 100, and it it's a range, 10 to, 10, 10 to 100. It's a big range, yes. Uh, and that's because we are not yet at the point where we can ascertain whether a sea turtle that has been spotted is going to be one individual traveling a significant distance or going to be multiple individuals. And that's one of the challenges of wildlife observation, especially it, wildlife indeed. observation in the ocean. One of our next projects is to start a photo ID of the turtles. So in addition to working with NOAA and the National Marine Fisheries Service, uh, as they use our data to help them tag and, and measure and count the turtles, we also are hoping to start a photo ID program. You might have heard of photo ID programs in citizen science for whales or dolphins, other marine mammals, yeah, like where they can identify yeah. them. Yeah based on their tail fluke or based on basically distinct markings of an individual. 
one of the things that's been discovered is that sea turtles have very distinct scutes or plates around their eyes. And you can identify individuals based upon the pattern of those scutes around their eyes. We're hoping that we can begin taking pictures of the turtles and matching those and matching those individuals. It's a time-consuming process, and it's also one that is only really recently available because high-powered photography hasn't been available to the general public as something that you can do quickly and easily with a high zoom in a urban environment where you don't have much space to work with uh, until recently. So new camera advances have really done a lot for citizen science, not just for our turtles program, but for many other programs out there that are working on things like animal identification without disturbing the animals in their natural environment. And of course, uh, being able to do so when you only have a few seconds while the turtle surfaces to take a picture and hopefully get it to come out clear and focused and aligned so that you could use it as an identification picture. That is, that is really cool. Uh, so are these, you see that you think the turtles might be coming in there because it's warmer. Are they, are they coming there and warming up and it's feeding elsewhere or are they, are they feeding in the river as well? Are you spending like the they, whole time like in the river? They're most likely feeding in the river. Uh, there are not the seagrasses present that you would expect the turtles to naturally feed off of. Um, however, there are quite a few small animals and vertebrates and other uh, food sources for the juveniles that can help them uh, develop and help them grow. It's a pre pretty fantastic opportunity to observe wildlife and see wildlife in a place that most people don't get a chance to connect with wildlife. In Los Angeles, we don't have uh, very many areas where people can see or connect with the natural world. So it's nice to have these areas that we can see something unique and different and hopefully draw those connections to the great wide world out there and especially to ocean life, which everybody in Los Angeles is connected to whether they know it or not, because of our watershed, because the Los Angeles River, the San Gabriel River, and some of the other rivers in the area drain directly into the ocean. And so what, um, I guess the last thing that I definitely want to ask you is, uh, are there negative, like, impacts um, that you've observed of the turtles? Like, are there dangers? Like, do you think these turtles are, are doing well in the river, or are they getting caught up by boats or ingesting uh, trash? Do you think? How do they do in the urban area? Well, uh, it's a hopeful sign that they are there at all and that they do uh, seem to be, in general, as a population worldwide, recovering or starting to recover. Um, but in the specific San Gabriel River, boat strikes are definitely a threat to them and a threat to turtles inside of the greater Los Angeles and Long Beach area. And that's certainly a concern. We have absolutely seen sea turtles swimming through uh, trash in the in the river. Um, fortunately, the river is not usually 
full of trash. <laughs> it's usually fairly clean, but uh, there are certainly more signs of trash and trash cleanup efforts that are needed, especially after a heavy rain. You will see uh, plastic bags, styrofoam cups, single-use products that have washed down through storm drains and washed out into the river. And Storm drains will feed directly out into the river and into the ocean, so anything that's there just gets washed down, and we'll see the sea turtles surfacing between those pieces of debris on a fairly regular basis after the rains. I don't know what dangers those pose to the turtles overall, uh, but I do know that we've certainly seen them in and around that kind of debris on a fairly regular basis. Any turtles that are found are uh, reported or hopefully should be reported to the National Marine Fisheries Service. They are a protected species, and they are a species that uh, whenever they are injured or if anything can be done for them, the National Marine Fisheries is going to take care of them and uh, see what can be done to rehabilitate them. Or if one is found, they're going to take them in and uh, discover what may have happened to it or what danger it may have encountered. I know that there are certainly turtles that have been found that were stunned by boats or hit by boats going uh, above the speed limit. Um, and we did have an instance that uh, was covered by a few news outlets where we found a turtle that was entangled in fishing line. And fishing line oh, that discarded can entangle all kinds of marine life. Well, it did happen to entangle this turtle. We were able to work with our NOAA marine uh, a nymph person and get that turtle to shore and get it untangled. He was able to measure that turtle and document it, examine it, determine it was healthy enough to be released, and they were able to uh, release that turtle. We do see it still in the river. So that's, that's nice to uh, still have him around. It's been uh, quite some time, almost a year now since that happened. And have you surveyed the other river, like other similar rivers in, um, or are there other similar, like, is this a one-off or are there similar systems in, in Los Angeles County that, that could potentially have these turtles that no one's noticed? Or is it like pretty much just specific to this that you know of? Like, have you gone looking for them in other similar, um, um, so, areas. Yes. Uh, the sea turtles are known to exist in many of the waterways uh, coming up the coast uh, in varying numbers, so not necessarily in the numbers that we have. Uh, it might just be as, as small as one was spotted at one point in time at this location. Uh, so we do know that they do spend time at different waterways coming up the coast. Uh, we know that there was a river with a similar population of turtles in San Diego, and that river also had the once-through cooling uh, that was going on. And that was a population that then moved to be 
still in the San Diego area, but slightly more dispersed within their Bay Area uh, once the once-through cooling from the power plants was shut off. So the turtles are still there. Uh, they're just not necessarily concentrated in one spot as much as they were before. And that may indeed be the case with other rivers in the Los Angeles area, where they may be there but not there quite as concentrated or quite as frequently. Well, I just, in general, take home, I think, is really fantastic that we're able to connect people to wildlife this way. And I think it's really amazing that these do exist so close to such an urban environment. And it's surprising what animals are able to do in those urban environments and how those populations are able to not only survive but thrive. I hope that anybody who's listening goes out and explores their urban environments and sees what there is to see out there. Synanthropic organism. I like talking to her because she's like another educator. So she like totally has that like voice. And You can hear how she explains things that like. Yeah. She's used to talking to groups of like 25 fourth graders and like. <laughs> but, I mean, but it's funny because I don't talk. Like, yeah, I'm an educator, but I don't talk like that at all. I have this completely other persona. Yeah. But I recognize that persona in my field, but I have, like, this other kind of persona of, like, of kind of, like, being charismatic and surly at the same time. You're saying she's charismatic and surly, you're charismatic. I'm charismatic and surly at the same time. Yeah. Um, So the, yeah. So, I mean, this is one of these ones where I guess they're studying it. You hope it isn't bad for the turtles to be drawn into... Artificially warm water where they're this like one. to just stretch their flippers out and chill. They just want to hang out with Snoop Dogg. <laughs> Long Beach. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's neat to think that, you know, that's they're definitely there because of human activity, you know, like yeah. that is tracking them there. They're getting the warmth, they're getting some other benefits. Um, I see manatees do this in Florida, right? Yeah. Where they'll go to the water coming out of. Nuclear power plants. Yeah, just yeah. chill. Yeah, I need to. We need to definitely do some more stuff about manatees. They're fun. I love them. I love swim. I swam with manatees in, in uh, Blue Spring State Park, and it's in between like Orlando. Ooh, I've been there. I I canoed with manatees Are you there. To yeah. Touch them? Oh, they're right there in the water. No, you well, can't. You don't, you're, you're you're feeding the line, right? You don't need. No, 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 to, you don't need to touch them. They're right. They're right there. When you we were, so we just want to reach out. I saw. So. I saw an American bittern. I was in a canoe at Blue Springs State Park, an American bittern standing on the back of a manatee. Just the so manatee's you. munching on some lilies, and the bittern is hunting from the back of a manatee. That's so awesome. When I was there, well, we we found out about this place because we played Daytona, right, and. Uh, we went to this uh, visitor center, nature center in Daytona, and they had um, I, like information or like pictures of their other of of nature centers in that county. And it says something like Blue. Oh, it was, I guess it was state parks. So it was another state park. It had a Jurette Pont Inlet thing, and then they had this um, picture of Blue Spring State Park, and it said Volusia County. And I said to the person at the desk, I was like, "What county are we in?" And they're like, Volusia. And I was like, well, how far is Blue Street Park? And they're like, oh, it's not very far at all. It's like half an hour away or whatever, 45 minutes. And I was like, so, guys, can we go there more? And they're like, yeah. They're like, and they're talking about all the manatees there. And I said, can you, 
he'd swoop with them. And they're like, yeah. And then, like, can you touch them? And they're like, no. But they can touch you. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you can't touch the manatees, but, like, they can come up to you and, like... like do they? Yeah, they oh, do. Yeah, you have to, like, get... I'm telling you, it's right there. You have right to get there. out of their way, or the rangers will yell at you. You're not supposed to touch them. And, they, and you have to literally, like, dodge a manatee trying to hang out with you. And sadly, you can identify the individual manatees by the scars. On the, the, uh, these ones the weren't too. Yeah. Weren't, were, 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 that's well, more. I, think I saw some with scars. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they get too scarred up in compared to the ones in like the more estuarine areas. Okay, I think these manatees might live their whole lives in the St. Johns River system and not really okay. get too many boats like they do in like you know Miami Bay. You know. Yeah. All right, guys. So we've talked about manatees. We talked about the green sea turtles on opposite sides of the world. We talked about our Diamondback Terrapins. If you like this episode and you like the podcast, please tell your friends about it. Please rate it on your podcasting platform of choice. Please get in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Please hit us up on Twitter at urbanwildlifecast. Find us on Facebook. Tell us what you think of the show. Tell us uh, ideas for programming. Feel free to, to pitch something where you might record something, send it in. We can't pay you because we have no money and we don't make money from this at all because, you know, we haven't figured that out yet. But if you want to share your research project or something cool you see in your neighborhood, we want to put that on the show. So, so get in touch. And if a bird hits your window and you find the carcass, put it in an individual Ziploc bag with the locality and the date. And put it in the freezer and bring it to the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University where the ornithology department will skin your bird and put your name on the tag collected by dot dot dot. Generations from now. Where it will live in perpetuity for science. Researchers will look at that tag as they pull it out of the drawer and they'll be like, who the hell is that? But that's great. They brought us a dead bird. I feel bad now. I remember... When I lived in at Forty Seventh and Pine in a high rise there, I remember like seeing a dead, I think it was some kind of little dead warbler like on the sidewalk outside of the apartment building, and I think I fed it to my snakes. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, snake food, sure. Don't do that. Uh, save it for science in- and uh, feed your snake a starling or something. But um, thanks a lot for listening, and till next time. Cheers. Adios. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> what the hell is that? Uh, the, the greatest website is gone now, I think. Hornymanity.com. Hornymanity.com.